the doctrine of reincarnation is still not generally accepted. We should remember, however, that this teaching has been the mainstay of most other religions, Eastern religions particularly, for thousands of years. It's a fact of life for countless millions of people on the Earth's surface today. Reincarnation is not a subject that we can afford to dismiss with an airy wave of the hand, saying that it's nonsense, that it doesn't exist just because we don't understand it. The fact is, most people who can't bring themselves to believe it are really afraid of the idea. Afraid because they think that if it really is true, they might have to come back and go through it all again. Oh, I never want to come back, they say. I've had enough this time. Maybe so. But such an idea as this is due to ignorance of the true facts about reincarnation. If we, in the West, were to make a much deeper study of this fascinating subject, we should soon find ourselves very much in harmony with the idea. After all, it is another expression of divine wisdom manifesting through natural laws which are as just as they are wise. Well, we, at least, can look into this teaching and perhaps arrive at a better understanding of these laws and the purpose behind them. Do you remember our lecture about the constitution of man? And we saw that the three lower principles the physical and astral bodies and the prana make up the tangible part of man. And so how the lowest of the mental principles, instinctive mind, manifesting through these bodies, was what we could refer to as animal man. In these first four principles then, without the conscious awareness which manifests through the intellect, we have something which lives and moves, has thoughts and feelings of a basic nature, but which is not aware of itself, which doesn't know why it lives and moves, or where those thoughts and feelings have come from. In other words, a sort of animal. And an animal, it would always remain without the dawning of that higher principle of intellect. It is the advent of intellect that renders the animal capable of understanding itself and its relationship to others, which makes it possible for it to plan for the future, brings the faculty of reason and thus sets the soul forever on the pathway of human evolution. And you may also remember from that lecture that we said we could call the result of this unfoldment of intellect, the thinker, in its earthly life, struggling to express itself in the world of form through this dense fleshly covering, gradually creates a set of characteristics in the physical form. In a manner of speaking, it sets its own particular stamp upon the body, which then acts as a sort of mask which covers the real thinker. The Greek word 
for mask, is persona. And from this we have derived the term personality, which we can readily see is the quality or the property of the physical principles, superimposed upon them by the thinker, as he develops more and more control over these lower faculties. The animal man by himself is really only a set of instinctive thoughts, nervous impulses, acting through a collection of cells, the complex aggregate of which is the physical body. The thinker is like a king who rules over this vast kingdom, keeping or trying to keep his subjects in order, endeavoring to provide for their needs. He, the thinker, is a spark of the divine an individual portion of the Absolute, a drop of water from the ocean of God, which now, through the dawn of intellect, must accept the responsibility for manifestation into conscious life, and which has to live that life through contact with a series of worlds, of which this present earthly one is the most dense. The thinker does that, maintains its contact, with these worlds, by using vehicles or bodies that results in the making of a personality, which is the outward or visible manifestation of the thinker. We then put a name to that personality. We call it John or Mary or whatever. Thus setting the seal upon the apparent separateness of that personality from all others. Now the whole idea of this manifestation of God through material worlds seems really quite incomprehensible to us at this stage of our spiritual development. But there's really no doubt of the reality of the situation as far as we are concerned. Here we are and we know that we're here. And it seems that the highest we can aspire to in the way of motives and actions in this life is all that we can concern ourselves with. But the purpose of this part of the evolutionary plan, in fact, is to enable us to unfold more and more of the divine potential within us. We see that in nature, in every tiny seed, there is a possibility of a beautiful flower in every little acorn is a mighty oak tree of the future. And we see that these trees and flowers, as they unfold and develop, add to the strength and beauty of the physical world, bringing a greater sense of love and harmony. As we, too, unfold our potential strength and beauty, so shall we add to the beauty and harmony of the worlds in which we are evolving. In each physical lifetime, the thinker learns to develop or unfold a little more of this divine strength and beauty. That, in fact, is the prime purpose of the reincarnation or the cycle of rebirth.
so long as we can understand what it is that reincarnates, that it's the thinker and not the personality who returns to physical life and experience, that it is much easier to understand and accept the possibility of reincarnation. Another objection to this teaching, which is often raised, is that very few people ever remember anything at all of any past lives. And if they do, it's usually in the form of a dream, very often fragmentary and disjointed. Such people that insist that if they have lived before, surely they would remember. Well, a logical look at the facts might help us to understand why memory does not extend into past lives. Or at least, not memory as we know it. We have to go back to our lowest principle, the physical body. Now, in order for the thinker to be able to express itself through that body, it must have some kind of instrument of thought, some apparatus, which will enable it to register its ideas and feelings in some tangible way, with the help of the boards of creation, the thinker has designed and made for himself such an instrument, which is called the brain. Now this brain is a purely physical thing, made up like the rest of the body of physical atoms, molecules and cells. It is designed to function only during the lifetime of the body, and at death will disintegrate along with the rest. During the lifetime, this brain records all the happenings, events, ideas, dreams and memories arising from the thinker's efforts to express itself in the world. And at any time in that life, any of those memories may be recalled. Anything which has been put in may be taken out again, so to speak. But in each earthly incarnation, the thinker takes a new body and a new brain. This new brain, this new collection of atoms and cells, has no memories whatsoever stored within it in the form of thoughts. None at all. A new personality has now been assumed by the thinker, and this has no connection with the previous one. It's obvious then that this brain can have no memory of something which it has never experienced. Let's try a little analogy here. A man is an actor, perhaps in a repertory company. And this week, he's playing the part of a politician. During his performance, he tries to adopt the personality of that politician. And so, temporarily, loses his own identity. While speaking his lines, he becomes involved, in a way, with that fraction of the politician's life which is portrayed in the play. And if he's a good actor, has learned his craft well, he enriches the play by his skill in performance. But if he's also a wise actor, and he learns from this part as a politician. 
he learns something about politicians and the way they think, particularly if the play has been well written. Next week, the actor may be playing the role of a butler. This is a new play. And this character, the butler, knows nothing at all about the politician in last week's play. He can't possibly do so. But the actor remembers the politician. Of course. And now, as the butler, he once more brings his art to his portrayal, an art perhaps slightly improved by the experience gained when he was playing the politician. And also now he's learning about butlers, the way they walk and talk and think, and so on. And we can see that after playing many parts in many plays, our actor, always supposing he is wise, has learned a great deal about all kinds of people and the way they are, the way they think and act and speak. In consequence, he's become a very good actor indeed. Through his experience in many roles, he's gathered the knowledge and wisdom of his profession. But never at any time in his career has he ever actually been any of the characters he was playing. He, the actor, has always been greater than any of them. And none of those characters have ever been associated with each other, except through the mind and the memory of the actor. And so it is, with all the different personalities adopted by the thinker in his quest for knowledge and wisdom through experience. All those personalities, all the physical bodies and brains, are separate from one another. Their only possible link is through the mind of the thinker. This present personality which you have assumed, whoever you are, or whoever you think you are, will never ever live again on earth after the physical body has ceased to exist. With all your purely physical memories, you, John Smith, or Mary Brown, or Joe, something will be gone forever. But the real you, the thinker, the actor, will of course carry on. After a brief, or perhaps even a long rest, a new play will begin its run on some new stage. Another set of characters will begin to move about on that stage. And in that new play, there you will be, bringing your experience and hard-won skill into the play, both to give and to take, to share your art with others, to learn and to teach. You can see, then, that to recover the memory of any past life, we have to become attuned to the thinker 
to bypass the ordinary mental processes of the characters we're playing and to contact the higher mind. There are certain meditative techniques and disciplines which will enable us to do this. And regression in a hypnotic or trance state also, although this can't always be relied upon to provide evidence of past lives. The unconscious, the higher plane of instinctive mind is a very capable actor itself. It's able to dramatize and invent. In this way, much of what passes for recollection of past lives is in fact the acting out of memories from the subconscious. Memories of long forgotten tales heard or read. Not all, but quite a lot of regression comes under this heading. But however we do it, once we have succeeded in awakening to that spiritual consciousness, in harmony and attunement with the thinker, then we can have an almost complete recall of all our past experiences. But at this stage of our human development, it's a wise provision of the law that we don't remember past lives. Many of the deeds we have done and the thoughts we have harbored as we progress through the lower stages of our growth would be a tremendous shock to our now more sensitive natures. We've all, in time, passed through the animal man stage. And those memories, if now revived, would really serve no useful purpose. Quite the opposite, in fact. They might even reawaken some of those long-buried instincts within us and cause us to turn back for a time on the path to gratify those baser desires which we have so patiently suppressed. Now, the poet was really quite right. He said, let the dead past bury its dead. We are a product of those past lives and experiences, you know, like the actor. We're all the better for having played the parts. The thinker has grown immensely in his ability to control physical conditions and mental states. And to the anti-reincarnationist, we might pose this question. How else could the thinker or the ego evolve except through repeated experience. Only through a succession of births or seeming births and deaths, through gradual growth and development, can a tree become a tree. It doesn't happen overnight or on the first day. In the beginning is the tiny shoot, and long ages must pass before we see the final emergence of the full-grown tree, the full potential. The 
has another objection to the reincarnation doctrine in that it conflicts with the orthodox Christian belief which teaches that at the death of the body the soul passes into purgatory and thence into heaven or hell for all eternity. There seem to be several different ideas actually within the Christian churches about the nature of this after-death existence. And in fact, each one of them has only a small portion of the truth. But at this point, we cannot accept this as a valid objection to reincarnation any more than we could accept that a child's steadfast belief in Santa Claus denies the reality that it is father under the cotton wool beard and the red cloak. If we are to grow and develop, we must be prepared to open our hearts and minds to the greatest possibilities. There isn't anything remotely illogical or even unlikely about the doctrine of reincarnation. It just needs to be understood. Those who oppose it most violently are usually, unfortunately, those most ignorant of the true facts, who have never taken the trouble to investigate the laws which govern such things in nature. One of those laws, most closely bound up with reincarnation, is called the law of consequence, or cause and effect, in the East Karma. We ought to look more deeply into the practical aspects of reincarnation, the mechanics of it. How does it work? Well, in between earthly lives, the thinker actually does enter a state of purgatory, which state exists in the astral realms around the earth. After a short stay there, the soul leaves the state and awakens in a part of the astral world to which it is drawn by its own present state of development or unfoldment. The conditions found at this awakening are those which are actually in harmony with the thinker himself. Here, there is an immediate response to the desires. The deepest desires, those which have not been shed during the stay in purgatory. So then, the soul finds itself in a world of its own making, as it were. A very real world. And it is happy or unhappy according to the conditions or the limitations of that world. It also quickly comes to realize that these limitations are the outcome of its own shortcomings, its own lack of growth or experience. And it also realizes that that lack of growth or experience largely depends upon the lessons either learned or not learned and the opportunities accepted or lost in the life which has just ended.
So after a time, longer or shorter, spent in this higher region of the astral world, the desire for further experience becomes very strong. And the soul is drawn into energy currents, which sweep it back towards the earth. And there, with the help of wiser minds, it seeks for a new incarnation into a life and circumstances which will provide it with just the experience that it needs to overcome those limitations from which it suffered in the astral world. Once having made its decision, chosen its place, time and family of birth, the die is cast. The thinker sleeps again for a time and then awakens once more in a new body and a brain in a new time. He awakens to no memory of a former life on earth or even in heaven for that matter. Everything seems new. Everything seems to be happening for the first time. Except that the thinker has within itself certain deeper characteristics or instincts, awarenesses, not of the mind but of the soul. These are the outcome of its past experiences. Exceptional abilities or talents in a young child, or genius, these are the result of this soul memory. For as a thinker pursues one line of development through many lifetimes, so the skills thus acquired are forged into the inner awareness, and they show themselves more and more strongly in each successive incarnation. And again, that's logical enough. Nothing, no effort, is ever wasted in nature. Such a thought surely is much happier than to try to believe that at the death of the body all the patiently acquired learning and skills are snuffed out like a candle to be known and to be used no more or that the wonderful artistic abilities and techniques and intellectual attainments driven for have to be abandoned at the last in favor of some undesired eternal singing and harping practices in some celestial hall. The doctrine of reincarnation is above all a logical one, as we have said. It provides for progress, but through effort, for advancement, through learning. Anyone who hopes to get something for nothing would be against this idea, obviously. But in the end, they will be disappointed. For nature demands that we must give in order to receive. That we must sow before we can reap. And that we shall reap only that harvest of our sowing. This reaping and sowing we shall consider 
in the talk about karma or cause and effect. 